Welcome to Stovepipe's Caravan. Hop aboard as we travel together through a haunted forest full of music, magic, spirited conversation, and all kinds of weird shit in between. Tonight's conversation is with illustrator, author, and Edward Gorey enthusiast, Landis Blair. And welcome back, everybody, to Stovepipe's Caravan. I, of course, am your trusted host, Stovepipe. And right now, I'm actually looking out of my window at a very big, beautiful blizzard. That's right. We got hit pretty hard last night, and a little bit was sleet-filled. But now it's just beautiful and white and magical and shining and sparkling. And I hope that if you got hit by that blizzard that it's just as beautiful as the one that I see. Uh, For you winter fans like myself, I hope you're doing something super cozy, that you're staying inside, that you're safe, get some hot chocolate, put a little bit of whiskey in it, and just have yourself a really good, cozy evening. Even better if you have like a, a wood stove or whatever it is. I myself do not, but I'm having a good time. I'm really excited for today's episode. You're going to hear more about it. Uh, But one name that you're going to hear a lot as we chat with our guest, uh, Landis Blair is his name. Landis is a acclaimed author and illustrator, and he's actually recently been in The New Yorker, so he's getting a lot of attention, and we're really glad to have him. And another person we're glad to hear about is Edward Gorey. Now, if you listen to this podcast you probably already know a lot about Edward Gorey. The the types of folks like yourself love this man and uh but he was he wrote some really incredible illustrations and poems that were about death and the macabre and it was super halloweeny and he influenced Tim Burton and all the people that have really made an even bigger name for themselves than Edward Gorey was uh, during his time. But our guest, uh, though super original and has his own voice, his own style uh, with his artwork, definitely and proudly is inspired by Edward Gorey. For those who might not know a lot about Edward Gorey, uh, you'll learn uh, during this conversation. But uh, as I said, he was an illustrator and writer and uh, who was more of a cult figure. And he's famous for a collection called The ABCs of Death. And if you haven't read that, go on the internet. There's plenty of examples that you can see of it. And it's just, uh, it's a a great time. So uh, this podcast, if you're new to it, it's, I call it a musical paranormal podcast. And we chat with somebody every couple weeks when we have the podcast who is interested in the paranormal, often involved in it, that may be a, a ghost hunter, a writer, uh, or sometimes we might even have like a musician or a filmmaker who's really into that that part of life. And uh, myself personally, uh, as I said, my name's Stovepipe, and I'm a one-man band, a songwriter, and a soap maker. And one of my uh, main interests is horror, is the macabre, is spooky stuff. And I've always wanted to make something about that because uh, I've liked it since I was a kid. And this podcast is, is my way of doing that, my way of sharing that with you. So I hope you like it. Uh, 
if you're a fan already, then there's a couple ways that would really help this podcast get out there even more. You can share a review of it on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's available on on a majority of the major uh, sites where you can hear a podcast and music, such as Spotify, such as Apple Podcasts, and several others. But go ahead and put a review up there. And I'm going to have a Patreon uh, in the next month sometime. So that will be a way of financially supporting me uh, that will keep the lights on, that will keep me doing this, that will help me to keep sharing all these fascinating people and getting their work and uh, themselves out there more. And so keep posted on on that financial uh, contribution that you can make. And there'll be a lot of goodies and bonuses for you for helping out in that way. Also, you can share us on your chosen social media sites. If you want uh, to uh, check out our Facebook, you just go to facebook.com backslash backslash Stovepipes Caravan. Again, that's facebook.com slash Stovepipes Caravan. Also on Instagram at Stovepipes underscore Caravan. Again, Instagram is at Stovepipes underscore caravan maybe on twitter i'm not sure yet i've had mixed results with twitter and i have a hard time being interesting in just a few sentences but you never know the main hub uh, where i keep uh, not just my podcast but also my music my soaps and uh, anything else that i'm working on is at the website Stovepipes magic. Wait, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Stovepipemagic.com. So again, go to my website, stovepipemagic.com, and I believe most of my uh, social media can be accessed that way as well. Feel free to share it liberally uh, and the episodes, and just help me get get it out there. It's a new podcast. Already got a lot of great feedback. A lot of great people saying that they've been enjoying it but uh, please please from the bottom of my heart get the word out so this episode did have a couple minor sound issues i did my very best to to remedy them and and make it listenable and the conversation is so fascinating and our guest is so fascinating that i don't think you're even going to notice but i just wanted to throw an apology for a couple glitches that happened uh it was recorded on a day where it was also a storm and we had some connection issues as a result most of these i have to do uh through the phone through skype and there is a few problems there but again i apologize but forget that i even really said this and just try to enjoy the podcast itself another thing that i do on this podcast is i'll write a song about the guest and it's one of my favorite things to do on this, aside from the engaging conversations. And so this song is incorporating a little bit about Edward Gorey, but also about our guest. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for stopping by. This Blair, he sure does care about Edward Gorey, a fine inspiration for his drawings and also his stories. And 
We're gonna die, won't even have to try It's just something that happens to us So hop on board, sit back and relax And you'll see what's with all the fuss Landis Blair, come share with us Landis, if you were in an elevator and people asked what you did, what would you tell them? I I suppose the easiest answer would be I'm I'm an author and illustrator, um, or, or depending on the situation, sometimes I'll just say I'm an illustrator just because that's, uh, it, it'll direct people more towards the kind of work I do. When did you start so, doing illustration, and when did you start doing the type of illustration that you do now, the uh, the the macabre? <laughs> um, I, I suppose the, the illustration work itself started. Uh, probably maybe two or three years after um, after I graduated college. I mean, I, I studied fine art, but I primarily did figurative painting and drawing. And I thought I was going to, or my intention at that point was to go on to uh, get an MFA and then hopefully to teach somewhere. But I, I quickly learned that things don't go as you as you plan, and I, I didn't get into any of the MFA programs I, I applied to, and so I found myself. Uh, unemployed at some point uh, a couple years after graduating and it was during that period that I really started drawing again and I had a friend started drawing and painting and then a friend who was doing illustrations said hey you should really try this uh, and I started uh, kind of experimenting with it and um, it, and so there was always kind of a macabre element to the the artwork I was doing even in, in school doing uh, doing painting but it definitely transitioned into uh, the illustration and uh, also at about that time I mean I, I knew knew who Edward Gorey was prior prior to that um, although I came to him late I didn't I didn't find out about him until late high school and that first interaction with him I actually was one I have you know, I feel it, it, was, it was an experience of shame where I was I was worried because of my my religious view at that at that, that point the way I was brought up but um so i was aware of him at that point but it wasn't until after college that i really started diving into his work and i fell in love with all of his little books and the cop stories and that's kind of the uh, where this, me telling the stories i do now the, the short illustrated um kind of picture book that with the macabre side to it that came out of that kind of deep or i wouldn't say deep reading but intense reading of, of glory and Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, I was, you know, early on, after I've been looking at Gore's work, I bemoaned to a friend, and I said something to the effect of, well, I wish that I could have done something like Edward Gore with these books, and uh, <laughs> and the friend basically called my bluff and said, well, why don't you just do it? You can just do it on your own. And, and so I, I took it as a challenge, and so I spent several months kind of writing and illustrating my version of an Edward Gore story, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then, you know, I self-published it, and I, I loved this process so much that did it over and over again and then eventually started going to comic conventions and through that I got other work etc but so you mentioned something a religious upbringing uh, was it because people yeah. didn't think you should read it or did you did you feel like an internal conflict reading that dark type of material in light of it uh, it, it was more the, the the latter because it was I, I, I grew up in an extremely sheltered uh, 
household. We didn't have a, a television uh, in-house, and any media content, whether it was music or, or books, um, had to come through this filter of my parents. And, and so I, I was very sensitive to anything anything that I, I felt seemed remotely, <laughs> I guess you could say, related to the devil. or you know, Right. And, and so when, when I discovered this, uh, one of the Amphigori treasuries, it was at a Barnes & Noble, I was looking for a Christmas present for a friend, and the, I, I just started flipping through it at the Barnes & Noble, and I was I was completely engrossed by these, these illustrations, and it, I had never seen something like this before, and I knew my friend had kind of a darker bed since I bought the treasury, and then I brought it home. Before I, I wrapped it, I, I started you know, reading through the whole thing, and you know, a number of things started jumping out, making me really, really uneasy. But then there was one one story that is called the the disrespectful summons, mm-hmm. kind of a, a woman that, that sells her soul to the devil, mm-hmm. and and so I, I started reading this story, and then there was this one panel early on after the devil kind of she makes this bargain, and and she's she's staring. The woman is standing in front of a full length mirror, and you can't. You can't see anything, but you can tell that she's kind of taking her uh, disrobe. Her, you can see her bare shoulder, and she's looking at herself in the mirror. And the the, the text is something to the effect of, and she saw his mark upon her breast. And when I saw that illustration, I mean, when I got, I had already been a bit uneasy, and then when I saw that, I just was overcome with so much guilt because I was not only was it dealing with the devil, but then also in my mind, this was connected to sexuality or, or, or nakedness. And, and so I felt so guilty that I actually went and I I brought the book to my father and I confessed to him <laughs> that and I sh- I showed him and you know, I asked him like what what do I do and I'm and he said well uh, if you you know if you're keeping you could give this book to your friends still if you want but uh, only if you think of it as from an artistic standpoint or from a it'd be, it'd be from from the drawings but that you have to make that decision for yourself. And I, I felt so guilty that I returned the book. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. So, uh, so, so that was my first interaction with them, and so it was kind of it was this interesting uh, juxtaposition of I, I was completely drawn into these these illustrations, but I I didn't know how to resolve the uh, in my mind kind of like this dipping your toe into the dark side almost. Right. Do you think? Do you think that was the uh, that was the beginning of your journey into a different viewpoint? <laughs> was was Ed Gregory? I mean, <laughs> it sounds like the guilt was pretty strong. I mean, and often for people, they they begin to change when it often I, I've seen it starts with a lot of guilt, but then they realize, hey, this really isn't so bad. This actually has a lot of merit, and then they start looking at other things. <laughs> And then the, yeah, yeah. the slippery slope, as as I was always warned of, uh, begins. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I wish I could say that it was it was just ever yeah that ever sparked it, but I mean, it was it was just one of many things. Um, but I, I think more what Edward Gorey did was he showed me that there that it was that it was okay to kind of explore that, or or, or uh, maybe another way of putting it was. You know, my, you know, me ultimately kind of changing my worldview and leaving, uh, leaving religion. It, it, a lot of it came about by realizing how much of my 
uh, my mind was fixated upon just trying to avoid going to hell. And so I thought about death a lot, but it wasn't right. There, it was only the only uh, outlet, I, the only uh, worldview I, I knew about to put that into was in this this one that I've been you know, taught, where if you if you don't follow the rules, basically you're going to be tortured for infinity after you die. And so it, it was, in a, in a sense, gory. But by looking at those stories, I, I think it was a uh, it was at least a stepping stone in, in realizing you could, that it was kind of. You could, you could, in a sense, you could enjoy death. I mean, it's over a simple part. You could enjoy death without worrying about the <laughs> you're going to hell part of it, um, or, or explore death. I should put it that way. But get that there was another way of looking at this. Right. It's. I have you heard of the show? I think it's Joe Bob. It's on Shutter. It's this redneck guy who shows really bad horror movies. And no, no, I haven't. I'll 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 uh, message it to you. But he talks. He talks a lot about some of the things you're bringing up. That that so many people who make horror movies uh, escaped uh, from religion. Uh, But had they not been initially religious, especially like the Hellfire Brimstone type, he's not sure that they could make good horror movies. (laughs) Like there's some (laughs) some dependence that good horror movies has. And he's like, he says some quote. I remember. He's like. uh, You'll never find a Unitarian that makes a good horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, actually, something something I've I've come to realize just in the last six months or uh, or so is kind of along those lines is what you know people have asked me kind of directly. You know, well, so where does all this darkness come from? all, All this. Uh, stuff that I'm putting out in the work, and and when I after I thought about it, I realized that the honestly honest answer is that you know, while my media content was so um, was so limited and and structured by by my parents, you know, they're trying to keep me safe from anything that could taint me. What I did engross myself in a lot. You know, I read the Bible a lot, and and there's there's tons of you know, the Bible is full of awful dark you know, <laughs> yes. things uh, you know, in the Old Testament that just the it, one of the judges chopping up the, the, the corpse of, uh, of one of his concubines into 12 different pieces and sending a different body parts <laughs> oh, to God. the different tribes of Israel and um, you, you know the ground opening up and swallowing people in Ezekiel with the whole valley of skeleton bones that can you know, rise up and start walking it, it, there's mm-hmm. it, it, so in retrospect, I think that you, you well, while I was I was reading this in in terms of kind of fear and in that at the same time it, there still was <laughs> I was getting a a lot of that that darkness uh, through I mean through, through that perspective and I think like you said <laughs> that joke about the Unitarian uh, it's because the consequences were so so drastic and that right. that makes the fear. Uh, the fear is, is is far more genuine, I think, than if you. Yeah, you're on the precipice. You know, <laughs> it's trauma. It's, well, it's the difference between standing on the a precipice of an actual cliff or doing it in virtual reality, and you, you might be able to convince yourself uh, that 
you know, this virtual reality is, if this is real, you might get some of those pangs, but it's not going to be, it, it, it's not the same as if you're actually, you know that you're actually at a real cliff. Yeah, I mean, it's so much of that, a lot of it you really do wish wasn't a part of your life. You know, there's certain ideas I wish that I had never had. You know, I mean, some pretty big yeah. ones that stem from religion. But there okay, is, yeah. and and probably a lot of this precipice that, you, that you've highlighted and isn't a good thing for somebody to internalize. But any sort of horror really is a very good expression of dealing with that. And you know we're we're certainly all the richer to have so many so much great horror and or uh, I mean do you consider Edward Gorey horror I mean it's that <laughs> here um, that that were, that that built its own question so yeah I I don't actually but but I I, I see him as horror adjacent and and that's actually I guess I, I haven't thought about it in those terms but but I, that's probably what I would call myself I mean I'm not actually. A lot of people think that I am a big horror fan, and I actually am not. But that's because I get too scared by it. It's <laughs> it's, it's still hard to, you know, I still have a hard time sleeping if I, you know, or being by myself in my apartment if I watch, uh, watch the horror movies. So I tend not to. I mean, I tend to avoid them, but it they they have a fascination for me. And so I think it's the same with. I wouldn't classify glory as horror in the in the sense that it. Uh, I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe that's the. I don't really have a good definition of horror either. So maybe that. Maybe what? What? How would you define horror? That's a really good question. I feel like I would just pull something out of my ass. I would. I would say that would be hard for me to answer. But I would say that I do like. I do like horror a lot, and yeah. I would say the types of movies that I enjoy will have a supernatural element. Like, uh, there is a recent horror movie called Midsummer. Did you hear about that one? No, I didn't. It it occurs on, like, a on a pagan island, and things just go crazy. And I loved it. I found it fantastic. Uh, it was a yeah. nightmare that gave me nightmares, so it must have done something right. <laughs> but it almost, to me, didn't feel like horror because it wasn't really a supernatural uh, element to it at all. It was the things that, the, that these... Uh, hippies these pagan hippies on the island were doing to people that was horrifying uh okay yeah whereas like i think i mean the anytime somebody says horror the first thing that pops up to my mind is the exorcist because okay. it was the first horror movie that i saw uh and it's got that supernatural element and it's absolutely horrific there's really no other way to describe it whereas something like edward gory it's yeah. funny and macabre and super dark but it's not really scary. I mean, it's disturbing. But even that, because it's a because it's a in cartoon form, yeah, uh, it it's both horrifying and sort of not at the same time. Uh, so that's, yeah. does that make sense? <laughs> it's a hard question yeah, to answer, yeah, it but does. yeah. No, I, I think you're right. There's a. Uh, I, I guess I I can't help whenever I look at an Edgory page. It, it feels. As unsettling as it might be, the whole the, the, the drawing and the text, it, it sort of feels like every single page, Gory himself is winking at you in some way, and you're not uh, you, you're not necessarily sure why. But it's, I mean that, that's why I, I find Gory so funny is mm-hmm. because it's 
I'm not necessarily sure why something is funny, but just the, the, the way he's able to create this unsettling juxtaposition between the text and the image, no, no matter how unsettling it is, it, it mm-hmm. feels staged or, or everything is so intentional that it's, it, it can't not be a joke almost. Right, and it involves kids and nursery rhymes, which, you know, our parents tell us to kind of lighten us up a little bit when we're kids or to scare the shit out of us. I mean, depending, you know, like cautionary tales. <laughs> but a lot of it is, you know, to kind of kind of lighten the mood a little bit. And yeah. the combination of, of that and seeing a kid fall down the stairs to their death or get a horrible disease is yeah. is something else. Do, do you... Do you <laughs> Uh, I mean, you obviously like him a lot. Uh, do you know much about him, uh, him personally, like the history of Edward Gorey? Uh, is there anything that you find interesting that you'd like to to share? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's. I, I think the, the, the there's endless fascination with him. I mean, and I think that's that's one of the other things I love about him is that I mean, you could just see his his artwork and his. Uh, read his his stories and his books, and and there's there's enough there to just be completely engrossed and inspired uh, and entranced. But then the more you learn about him himself, the way he lived his life, it he it, it just it it becomes this unreal figure. Um, and, and so I, I think it's I mean in my mind he's the most eccentric person. The more I found out about him, the you know, biographies I've read about him that. Yeah, it's he, he lived his life in a way that his life was was a piece of artwork almost. Um, anything down to you know, the way he, he dressed, he would dress in a huge fur coat, no matter if it was the middle of summer and walk right you know, down down Manhattan. Uh, but then he'd be happy to have you know just beat up sneakers on beneath this big white white coat. Um, <laughs> and, and the other things that I think are fascinating about him are. Uh, I mean, a lot of people talk about his ballet obsession. And so while he lived in New York, there was a stretch of about 20 years where he um, he went to almost every single performance at the uh, at the ballet. I mean, you'd see the same show over and over again, that, that every single night he would be there at the ballet in the same seat in the front. And so he became this fixture of, of, of the ballet, and everyone knew he'd be there. <laughs> And he would, at intermission, there, there was a certain part of, you know, back in the theater near these pillars where he would hang out with a couple of other ballet stops and just mm-hmm. you talk, talk about uh, whatever was going on there. But it, I mean, it's just things like that where every, he was so intentional and eccentric, but uh, at the same time, in his personal life is, he was, a, he was quite secretive about, about a lot of his, his life. But uh, just the, the amount of knowledge he had, and the amount of um, he, if you read an interview with him or talk to people who knew him, he, he, they just he's he's constantly dropping in references to anything from soap operas that he's been watching, or <laughs> you know, in the nineteenth-century French novels that he's he's reading, and so. It's kind of this. Um, uh, he, he almost doesn't feel like of of this world, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but it's. 
Yeah, he's not like an average Joe of any by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> like you know, no, no. if your neighbor did the things he did, then said neighbor <laughs> would be freaked out. Right, uh, and, and he's. I, I think that um, he never could be. I mean, he's the kind of person that a lot of people know about him, but a lot of people don't know. Mm-hmm. Also, he, he's never going to be an extremely famous figure, even though in certain circles he, he is. But that's right. because of the kind of work he did. He was always on the periphery. He never, he never would, was conforming to somebody else's expectations of what a successful career was. Right. And, and so, I mean, but that's why his his voice is so unique, and uh, I, I think is you know it's, it's so special. So, he didn't have. He was a bachelor, right? Uh, he was for most of his life. There's uh, a lot of speculation. Uh, or, well, there was a recent biography that came out maybe two years ago. Uh, it's an excellent biography on him. Extremely expensive, but people long speculated on his sexuality mm-hmm. and assumed that he was gay. But he very much did not want to talk about it, and right. he frequently would say, "Well, I'm neither one thing or another." So other people thought he was. Um, uh, well, it was just very unclear. It just was obvious he did not want to talk about it. But within this biography, they mm-hmm. were able to kind of dig dig up a couple of relationships he had. But it, it seemed like it was much more he would get obsessed with, you know, another person and they would write, you know, furious letters for a while. But then he never actually wanted to be in the relationship kind of physically mm-hmm. both in the same place. Right. Um, uh, or and so it just became. Uh, it, it was kind of a almost was like an, an, almost another version of acting. It felt like, but, uh, but yeah, he lived most of his life alone uh, with, with his cats. He had a lot of cats. He had a lot of cats. Uh, oh, yeah. that I, I read. I flipped through a biography. Most of it, I just I was interested enough to look into his illustrations and didn't pay as much attention to his personal history. Yeah. But I, I, for, I vaguely remember there was something that had to do with cats. I remember the coat and the sneakers yeah. and, yeah, yeah. and such and knew he was secretive. I didn't know about the soap operas. That's, that's really interesting actually. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's baffling to me how, how much work he produced because, you know, in, in, as well as how much he was, he was, reading and watching and, and so I just don't know where he had the time to do all this stuff because in addition to the approximately hundred of these little books that he wrote and illustrated himself there's countless other books that he illustrated for other people or did the covers for and you know I'm, I'm, I'm I consider myself a fairly large gory fan but I'm still discovering right new uh, new covers he, he designed or um books of poetry that he, he illustrated and it's it's just uh he he works but it, he gives the impression like he was just lounging around watching so <laughs> so do you i mean i i i really i'm pretty new to your work myself do you, is your trajectory is it i mean do you kind of feel like i know it's it's probably would be hard to answer this question without sounding like high and mighty but like do you feel like you is your main focus kind of continuing in that vein that that really is specific to him uh or or do you go in a whole lot of other different directions that 
that have nothing to do with Edward Gorey? Uh, I mean, I guess some, some of both. I mean, I, I by no means think of myself as right. Uh, <laughs> Picking up the reins. I know it's a hard question to ask. Yeah, yeah. You know. But you're bound. You're going to be asked it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if yeah, not yeah. by me, someone else. I, I mean, I think maybe I'll put it this way: that it, I, I, I frequently have people come up to me that you know their first reaction is, "Oh, wow, you must love Edward Gorey." Or I mean, my, my favorite question is when people say, "Oh, do you know about this guy Edward Gorey? I think you'd really like him." And, and so it's, it, but that to me is never a. I never feel that. That that's always an honor to me if someone think of Gory if they look at my work because he's, he's by far my biggest influence but I don't while I want to keep in some capacity working in the vein he did I, I think you know I, I'm, I'm also cognizant that you, you, there's no way to replicate you know, precisely what he did and he, even his career was it was such a strange um, mm-hmm. a, a strange conglomeration of and because you know these these works that everyone treasures now these, these little books or the the Anthrogory treasuries for the, the most part he was not making money off of those at all I mean, oh really those on his own for fun and uh don't publish them or he would sell sell them but they'd, they'd be in very small um, print runs and mostly sold out of one small uh bookstore in manhattan called the Gotham Street Books, and so hmm. it wasn't until actually the Treasuries came out that they became more accessible for people to you know, they could get these older, obscure things. But most of the time, he was making money off of doing, you know, illustrating other people's books or doing covers. Right. Um, and, and so, and that's—I mean, I think that's maybe the biggest lesson that I hope I can take from him is the. I mean, I'm. I, Realized this over the last five years that, that I've now I've got, or I, I guess I've illustrated three books that have come out through major publishers. But I, you know, I've self-published probably about ten of these little books on mm-hmm. my own. Yeah, I have some far, of them. I, you gave me some. I really okay. enjoyed them. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad you to hear that because that those to me are the the thing I enjoy doing the most, and, and right. that's what's led to me getting these other projects. And so, if there's anything. Uh, if, if, if there's anything I could emulate, emulate about Gory, it would be that. And I, mm-hmm. I hope that I'll be able to keep myself doing these small projects because that, those are what actually feed me. And right. I mean, uh, feed me creatively, not, not actually, uh, they, they don't, uh, you mean, yeah. break even, you right? don't get a ton of dough off that one. <laughs> but No, no. But, but that's, I think, uh, so it, in that sense, I think I, I hope I could continue that tradition for my for myself of always be working on something small on my own and in real i mean that's actually, that's another lesson i've learned with my career is that i you, know, you can't kind of what i alluded to about the mfa earlier about you i no matter how you plan your career it's never going to go that that way no and so the most important thing i've I mean, when i look back the last uh 10 years that I've been doing illustration like this is the only way that I have been able to make a career of it is because I didn't I didn't care about the money or, or that I, I kept doing the things that I actually wanted to do and because mm-hmm. whenever you do something 
it. But in my mind, it's it's really obvious to people looking at it that this is right. that this is special, and that they can see that you're able to create something um, out of nothing. And I think you're and because of that, they're 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 going to give you opportunities to do other things that you never you know, would have pursued on your own. And that's you, you know, as long as you're doing the stuff that you actually want to do, people are willing to approach you and ask you to do something else and you know and that's in my mind that's where the career comes from so. right yeah and especially now uh, it is it is both easier and harder to become to be an, a working artist now like the yeah. the resources yeah. we have i mean you know f- for me in music the resources I have compared to when I was a kid, uh, I wouldn't give them up for anything. Like I find yeah, yeah. people pick on social media, but I would, I would, I could not have a career without it. Uh, yeah. But there is certainly how much people buy off me and other people that I know of has decreased enormously. You know, we all have to have day jobs or or do creative things that might not be in our wheelhouse. Like as you said, things don't. Don't pan out exactly how you like them, but if you can find these little, these little outlets to do what really is in your wheelhouse, like for you the you know the the booklets, the smaller uh, yeah. zines and, and things like that, and uh, it's probably you probably do. I mean, I'm sure you like doing these larger projects too, though. I mean, these hardcover I books. Yes, and... yeah, I, I do enjoy doing the, the larger projects, but it's it's they they drain me in in a sense that the smaller books, or, or, or say the, when I'm, uh, my independent projects, uh, in, in a sense, they they give me energy, whereas the the larger projects, they take energy away in some, in some sense. And I think it's it's just a matter of maintaining, uh, I mean, almost thinking of creativity like a, a resource that's, I mean, it, it's a self-replenishing resource, but it's, it's like a garden you need to tend Pending it, and so mm-hmm. in my mind, doing these other large projects are, uh, while they're they're beneficial and they're enjoyable, if if you're not uh, if you're just plucking fruit off of the plant and not fertilizing it, right? Your the fruit's going to get uh, the quality is going to go down in some sense. Yeah, right. So I'm I'm actually on your website right now, landisblair.com, L-A-N-D-I-S-B-L-A-I-R.com. So make sure you check it out. Uh, and I'm looking at your about section. And oh, yeah. yeah, and I'm actually just going to go through the top and, and talk a little bit about each uh, project. We've gone over some of the your smaller projects that you're that you're especially passionate about. Uh, this one lists mm-hmm. some that I'm assuming are the are some of the larger ones. Uh, uh, go ahead yes, and de- yes. de- describe it. Talk a bit about the envious siblings and other morbid nursery rhymes. Uh, that that's my latest uh, large project that that came out this past fall, and it's a collection of eight morbid nursery rhymes that I wrote and illustrated. And uh, what's most exciting about that book is that that came directly out of those small little books that I do because I'd done one one of those nursery rhymes. I didn't have any intention of doing a whole book of them, but then uh, my editor ended up seeing that small one and said, I want a whole book of these. Can you, can you do more? And so so that, yeah, so, so that is almost, I mean, it, it's basically kind of a bound copy of 10 
of what my small project would be. So that's uh, that's what that one. That one. Okay. How would you describe the content? Or is there anything? Hey, do you have any of it? Uh, have anything you could read to us? Oh yeah, I could. If you could read something from this book that uh, that you especially like. I, I'm going to read. I, I think this is probably my favorite nursery rhyme in the in the book, but it's called "Honorable Beasts." Well, we would Hester. be honored to listen to you read it. Oh. <laughs> Hester said, "Mother, you're being a pest. Go elsewhere till dinner and give me a rest." I hate you," screamed Hester from deep in her chest, before stomping off at this hurtful request. While crying with anger and some indignation, bemoaning her mother's imposed segregation, she saw out her window with deep agitation a tiger appearing without explanation. Hello, said the tiger. Please join me outside. Poor Hester just stared with her mouth open wide while pondering deeply before she replied. I thank you, she said, but I'm too terrified. Said the tiger, your fear I can see. And tigers are fierce, but I do guarantee your safety and merriment, if you agree, to come to my lair and have dinner with me. Oh, my, Hester said, it sounds lovely, but no, my mother won't like it and won't let me go. I see, said the tiger, but I'm not your foe, and you're not my only friend coming, you know. Hello, said a bear. I am charmed, to be sure, and dinner with you has a special allure. With you as our guest, we will put on our furs. What a night we will have, what a feast will occur. Then Hester let out a most pitiful sigh. My mother will yell at me until I cry, for she's making dinner, expecting me nigh. Hush, hush, said the tiger. Just look who's nearby. Hello, said a gator, how sumptuous you seem, and you at our table, oh my, what a dream, I'm so excited I almost could scream, he said with a smile and teeth all agleam. How tempting, said Hester, to join in your feast, but if you knew mother, your welcome would cease. She'd call you all wretched, dishonorable beasts, and keep me inside for a year, at the least. How sad, said the gator. Your mother sounds horrid. And, said the bear, her judgment's distorted. But, said the gator, she will be supported, for joining with us will ensure she is thwarted. It seems, said the tiger, that I missed my cue. In my excitement, I failed to tell you. Your mother will be at our fine dinner, too. And the bear and the gator responded, It's true. Then Hester cried out in ecstatic, Whoopee! and promptly climbed out of her window with glee. This changes everything. Now I am free to make very merry with mother and thee. And what a fine picture the four of them made. They danced and they sang as they marched through the glade. They strutted and rollicked and never once strayed en route to the lair in their beastly parade. At last, said the tiger, now do step inside. Discover what gaiety we can provide. Hurrah, said the gator, and how, Bear replied, and Hester, with gratitude, promptly complied. And lo, how the feast was displayed with great flair, the best decorations, the best silverware, and true to their word, Hester's mother was there, 
prepared on the table, plump and cooked rare. Bravo, man. Whew, that was... <laughs> <laughs> There's this setting on my podcast machine that has applause, and I if you didn't yeah. hear it, did you hear it? <laughs> well, when you when you if you if and when you do uh, listen to yourself talk, you'll hear hearty yeah. applause from a from a oh. computer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as far as uh, as your creative process, uh, I have no yeah. talent for visual. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> but like, <laughs> is there is there some sort of structure you have? Like, do the poems come first, and then you just draw around it, or do they work together? How would you describe it? Typically, I uh, I, I will have a a pretty solid draft of the the poem. Or I mean, this was the first time I've ever actually kind of written nursery rhymes. But in, it's the same. It was the same process as when I do my own little books, where I'll. I try to keep the, the text minimal, so it, it'll typically be, I mean, in this case, you know, it's one or two sentences of the poem with one illustration, or, so that's usually how my, my work is, and so I, I want them to, uh, I, I want the illustration to carry more weight than the, the text does, but in the case, even with the, with the poems, you know, it took a little longer to get the, you know, some some version of the text, but basically I... I would develop a draft of poem that I was happy with, and then uh, then the next step I would do is to do a thumbnail for every single page, and mm-hmm. you know that thumbnail is only you know a little bigger than a, a postage stamp, and essentially those thumbnails, in my mind, are the the most creative part of the whole process because at that point it's it's almost like brainstorming. It, you know, the, the end goal is to get just a kind of a rough outline of what the composition will be. And right. so because they're so small, you know, there's there's no bad idea. You can, you know, if it, something messes up, you just start over again. They're just kind of these throwaway little drawings. But mm-hmm. uh, the, the interesting thing, at least I find interesting, is when I look at my thumbnails compared to the final illustration, it's you know, definitely there's some that go through changes and, you know, or that, that completely change. But for the most part, they are are heavily rooted in those thumbnails or are, are basically the same exact composition just, just blown up. So, uh, so after I have those thumbnails that I'm happy with and the text I'm happy with, then I move on to doing the pencil drawing to the actual size. And that's, the in my mind, the hardest step of this process just because it's, the, uh, it's basically creating the skeleton of the drawing. And if mm-hmm. the skeleton isn't there, the whole thing's going to fall apart no matter how right. how, you, how you ink it. And so that's when I have to, in, in a sense, concentrate the most. And, and so I can't, when I'm doing a pencil drawing or, or the pencil underdrawing, I can't, you know, I can't listen to podcasts or uh, um, or audiobooks or something. I mean, I guess I, I don't do that with thumbnails either, but uh, once I move on to the actual inking, that is, for me, kind of, that's the enjoyable part. It takes the longest, but I can kind of just, in, in a sense, zone out and enjoy the, the process it's kind of this uh, uh, well, almost a meditative thing I mean right. I, the way I, I draw which is also inspired by Edward Gore is using a lot of cross hatching so it's building up tones and values mm-hmm. with hundreds and hundreds of small lines that one and of itself is kind of insignificant and but accumulated you you, you can create this unique 
if there's room for error. So if you know, so if you make a mistake, you just you know you're going to be making more marks around it, and so it's, it's I find it's a good way to kind of uh, relax the drawing because I I know I can always add more marks to right uh, to build this out. So. That sounds a lot to me like when I'm working on an album and yeah. the last step when it's production, when you're adding bells and whistles, like the, the song is is there, the main instruments are there. That last portion where it's really just having fun with your arsenal of toys, I agree, yeah, it's yeah. it's very meditative and it's it's it takes a long time, but it's it seems to work out best when you aren't stressed, whereas some of the... the you know, the when you're putting the bones together, there is a little bit of stress that's necessary and helpful to get it yeah. the very best, uh, to get it to stand on its own feet. But that that last part where you're really adding the dimension, uh, no, that's well put. It's it is. It's meditative and and uh, you can you can kind of zone out in a way. Yeah. And it's a little bit more forgiving. <laughs> you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the mistakes can actually add value to it, whereas in those more rigid stages, you really, I mean, at the end of the day, don't want to make too many of them, you know? Like, yes, yeah, yeah. That, that, sounds, that sounds very similar, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking again at your, at your bio. Uh, there's a lot of projects on here. Uh, another one I noticed, the, it says that you're the, the illustrator of the graphic novel The Hunting Accident, a true story of crime and poetry. Uh, but there's another name on here, David Carlson. Who's what is this graphic novel, and who's this David Carlson? Uh, David Carlson, he well, he's the writer on that that book, but he's uh, I mean he's just become a really good friend. But that's uh, that graphic novel is uh, it's based on a true crime story that takes place here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but it, it was a, a massive project, so it's about a 450 page graphic novel that I did all the illustrations for him, but it's a, uh, the, the protagonist of the story is a, a prisoner in, at, uh, in Joliet, Illinois, at Stateville Prison, and he's, he's blind. He's been recently blinded in a, in a shootout, and he's sent to prison, and his cellmate ended up being, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Leopold and Loeb, but hmm. they were, uh, they, they were kind of, they were called the thrill, thrill killers, but they were, one of the most well-documented court cases of all. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've heard of it through, from, like, I listen to a lot of those true crime things, yeah. I, I know oh, okay. who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah, I do know who you're talking about. So it's, it's two, yeah, the two really rich, wealthy boys that thought they were, they were reading Nietzsche, and they thought they were Ubermensch, and they, they, they <laughs> these two privileged boys decided to kidnap and murder a 14-year-old boy because they thought, just for the fun of it, they thought, thought they could get away with it. And they didn't, and uh, and they got sentenced to prison. But so this blind guy, he his cellmate ended up being one of these uh, thrill killers, and it was through uh, this Nathan Leopold, this, this killer, that he ended up having his his redemption because he was blind and he uh, he was basically suicidal. He, he was I think twenty two or somewhere hmm. around there. He thought his life was over. You know, he's a blind prisoner, and even if he gets out of prison. What's he gonna? You know, what's he gonna do? Right. Yeah. And uh, what ended up happening was that Leopold taught himself how to read Braille so that he could teach this character Matt Rizzo how to read, and then proceeded to give him an education in all of the in classic literature, having wow. read Dante's Inferno and Shakespeare and Milton, and 
story element but of, of the hunting accident, or sorry, the, uh, that's a kind of a plot summary, but uh, so, so David Carlson, he's the writer, but because this was such an extensive project, I, uh, I spent about three years working on that full-time, mm-hmm. uh, that you know, he, he had basically a movie script when he hired me, and... Hmm. Um, and so I did, I basically storyboarded or you did thumbnails of the whole script. But then after I'd done that, he and I spent another two or three months just, uh, we blew up the thumbnails onto a storyboard around the office, all the pages. And we spent two or three months just walking through the story and revising things and mm-hmm. um, adding things, moving things around. And yeah, that it, it was this, it became this really kind of special collaboration because it, we spent so much time together and, and so much time invested in the story that there's you know he would suggest things for me to change with some of the illustration you know the drawings and mm-hmm. i would suggest things to change the dialogue to the point where i have a very hard time remembering which things he suggested and which things i suggested right. and, but it was um i mean that by far was the most collaborative project i've ever done with somebody um, but, but something really special came out of it right yeah Boy, that's the kind of story. It, it seems it seems too good to be true. Like it's got yeah. it's yeah, got yeah. everything a good story has. And I mean, history can be you know our lives can be pretty mundane. And so like when yeah. you when you hear about yeah, these yeah. things that that happen, especially to to people who who paid a big debt to society, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, that's uh, boy. I, I I and I like I said, I had heard tell of it in part with proximity to Chicago, but. Uh, Wow, yeah, that yeah. is just. I gotta, I gotta read this, this graphic novel. <laughs> <laughs> so you live in Chicago? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's right in the thick uh, of it. Uh, right now I'm in Oak Park, which is just outside. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's technically. I mean, it's a bus from Chicago, but right. the the L comes right into it. But yeah. I've, yeah. I've lived. Uh, I've lived lived in Logan Square for yep. a number of years as well. So. Yeah, I love Chicago. Yeah, I'm not too far from there, and uh, Detroit's a great city too. It doesn't get enough credit, especially with with music. Oh, it gets plenty of credit for its music, but yeah, the city's yeah, a cool yeah, place. Yeah. But I, I mean, I love I love going to Chicago. It, there's so many parts that uh, every time I go, there's there's something new to discover, and uh, it's it's a, a Midwest treasure for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like. Uh, I, I hope to spend more time in Grand Rapids. I mean, it's been yeah. there a few times, but every time I'm I'm impressed by yeah. the, um, it's, it it seems like there's a lot going on there. Yeah, it's it's definitely improved. Uh, it's it's one of those places that used to be artistically rich, but also really cheap to live in, and it's still artistically rich, but it's no longer cheap to live in, <laughs> <laughs> which is annoying. But you know, I mean, it's uh, you know. Oh, there's another thing I wanted to ask you. It, yeah. Maybe you can't tell me this, but it says you're an active member of the Order of the Good Death. What the hell is the Order <laughs> of the Good Death? Uh, it's a uh, it's a collective of artists and writers uh, and uh, death professionals, so funeral um, uh, funeral home uh, or morticians, um, uh, funeral law professors. Uh, but, but essentially, the, the the whole concept of the group is to uh, bring death back into kind of public discourse, 
I, I mean, that's kind of the general, uh, mm-hmm. the, the general thrust of it. But it, what's also encompassed in that is trying to change the, the funeral funerary practices, the, the modern funeral practices mm-hmm. of embalming, and how the whole structure of the funeral industry uh, works, because it's it's drastically different than what it used to be mm-hmm. 150 years ago, or even 100 years ago. But the it it's become the, the way that we handle our dead bodies now, or the way that culture, contemporary culture, especially in America, handles death. It it's creating more and more of a disconnect with uh, with every individual with with death. I mean, their own death and death in general. That that we're it's becoming yeah. easier easier to hide ourselves from ever having to actually uh, encounter death uh, directly. I mean, when a, when a body dies, or when a person dies now, typically it, it's treated as if it's an emergency, and within you know, 20, 30 minutes, it, the, the body's picked up and taken away right. from your home, and then the body is embalmed. You don't see them for another you know, mm-hmm. two, three days, and when you do see them, they don't look like they're embalmed. It, 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 it right. creates this disconnect and it's it's made it collectively in the culture. It, the, I mean, the funeral industry they uh, they profit off of this fear of death and that yeah. portraying the the dead body as if it's dangerous, where a dead body is not dangerous. It's not going to give you the. I mean, there's there's some exceptions. You have the body person had to died of Ebola. Yes, then yeah, it, you probably shouldn't be touching the body. But mm-hmm. the vast majority of cases, you know, if your grandmother died of cancer. You're not going to get sick by handling her. The, yeah. the bacteria that's that's built up in a dead body is different than the bacteria of a disease. And, and so it's, um, but but all all that to say, if, if we used to have, uh, you know, in America, you know, the home home funeral that when someone would die, the body would be in the home for several mm-hmm. days, and the family members would come from you know, uh, far away to sit at the body. But but then through that. Uh, you, know, you are then washing you know, the corpse of your your mother or your father, or it, it, and you see how this person it, it, it becomes very clear that the person is is dead. And you see that transition, and so it, there's this form of closure that I mean, you are right. there's not this disconnect of the body taken away, and then it comes back, and it's this foreign, waxy looking. Object. Yeah, um, and, and that's, that's specifically kind of the funeral aspect that I, of this group, but the, the group in general is. It's trying to kind of it's creating a community of creatives, or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, cultivating a community of creatives that are specifically trying to uh, insert death more into their or that death is an important part of what they're doing. Just right. to kind of keep that conversation going. Boy, I feel like we could talk about this one subject. Uh, yes. <laughs> I I got to get this contact info for other members. I mean, this that's and I could not agree with you more. I remember I, I and a close friend of mine passed away several years ago. I mean, one of my best friends. Yeah. And uh and I've been to other funerals where it was the same response, but where yeah, yeah. um I wanted to make I I wanted to make peace with with it um with their passing, but like I felt like the open casket made it worse because it didn't look like them. It was that waxy. Yeah. I felt like, I mean, there's a line behind you kind of hurrying you along. It's not like, as you said, yeah. in, in a home where it's kind of, you're kind of waiting and being present with, with the dead. And yeah. and I've actually had a lot of 
nightmares and trauma and not healthy ones like some nightmares i love to yeah, have it's fun yeah. it's like you're in your own horror movie but you know <laughs> then then there's the kind where you're like jesus i'm i mean this is not good for me and yeah. I, I there's got to be a connection between and i bet i'm not alone there and and to be yeah, honest entering a home and my dead uncle is like just there would be very hard for me to it would be a real cultural uh switch and adaptation to totally know how to experience that at least for me but yeah. it does sound healthier than going and funeral homes are the worst places yeah yeah just just terrible yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> you feel like you interrupted somebody's ugly home you know like some right. <laughs> right. jeez yeah it uh there there's a um it's it, it just trying to I'm not sure what your experience, but it, within the funeral home itself, too. But I, I know that when uh, when my grandparents died in the last few years at the funeral, uh, yeah, I they, they were you know, pushing us out of the room when they were going to close the casket. Like, oh no, you don't you don't want to see us close the casket on them, or you don't want that. Just the, the amount of fear that the the funeral home was instilling to try to. Um, but like trying to act like, oh no, we're protecting you. We're protecting you from this. Um, you know, <laughs> from what? I mean, that's right. it. But uh, that, that if you, for some reason, saw that they actually were dead, that this would, uh, as you said, like that it, it's it's doing something. It, it's a form of trauma of um, mm-hmm. you know, robbing you of that closure or that experience. Um, I mean, it's the same thing in a hospital when mm-hmm. uh, when a body. When when they have a person who died in the room, they will typically if they have a special gurney where the you know, it looks like it's an empty gurney on top, but there's it's basically like a, a hidden shelf beneath the gurney that they put the dead body on, and then you know, then the sheets draped over it. And so you, you if you see somebody pushing an empty gurney down a hall, there might be uh, maybe not obviously all. I mean, they might be moving a gurney, but right. that's they do everything possible to prevent people from. Oh, you know, oh no! What if they saw a dead body? Kind of, um. Right. It's just, it's, it's something I don't even think of until you bring it up. You know, I mean, I I could not agree more. It's it's just this unsettling uh, angst underneath that accompanies yeah. our really, yeah. uh, really. Just, I want to say the word fake, but it it, it doesn't give it enough justice. Just this. Uh, like you said, it's they look waxy, the they look yeah. uh, not like themselves. The whole thing feels waxy to me. It's just like yeah. like throwing throwing uh, bad makeup on a on a uh, on a face so that it looks looks different. Uh, it's just it's it's horrible. Hey, yeah. if if you could if you could die any Ed Gory style death from the ABCs, which one would you pick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely Neville, uh, who died of ennui. <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> that's a good one that's, that's my favorite illustration in the book too just look, you've got a little pea sized head <laughs> over the windowsill <laughs> that's right the one who's the one that, that they fall down the stairs uh amy a is for amy you fall down the stairs that's how i'd want to go because um yeah. i have a, yeah i have a really hard head like ever since i was a kid i've like <laughs> punch myself in the head or I've, you know, knocked a hammer on it or something like that. And it was funny to people. Yeah. And, um, 
and I swear I have no brain damage from this, but like I was working at a camp once and some kids were playing uh, mini golf and they hit me right in the head. Um, like when they kind of hit, hit it too hard with the putter and I didn't even notice Whoa. it had happened until my, some guy was like, Holy shit, that kid just hit you in the side of the, the melon with a <laughs> golf ball. But like, but when I was in college, I lived in a house and I'd like to make people laugh by falling down the stairs and oh, really? because I, I was I was fine. It was a carpeted, but my my head was fine. You know, I did not worry about that. And so every time I read I read about uh, about uh, Amy falling down the stairs, I'm like, yeah, that's if, if I had to die an Edward Gorey death, that's the one I would pick. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I want to start asking more people like how if you yeah, were to yeah. die an Edward Gorey death, which which way would you pick? All right. Well, hey, Landis, thank you so much for talking to to us, and uh, I'm I'm really excited about your uh, your your career path ahead of you. It sounds like you're you're moving in the right direction a long a long way from your post college unemployed days that that yeah, sparked yeah, this yeah. whole this whole thing. <laughs> what uh, social media sites do you want to send us to? Uh, I'm not on Facebook, but uh, both Twitter and Instagram, uh, just at Landis Blair. Uh, you can you can find me. Okay. And the hub is your is your website is landisblair.com? dot com. Yes, that's correct. You can get to the Twitter Instagram. Excellent. Thanks again to Landis for joining us in this great conversation that we had. Make sure you check him out at landisblair.com. dot com. That's L A N D I S B L A I R dot com. Also, he's on Instagram. Also, we're on Instagram. It's just at stovepipes underscore caravan. We're on Facebook at facebook.com backslash stovepipes caravan. And finally, the hub is stovepipemagic.com. I'm going to end this with a new song of mine. This is called Praise Your Name, I'll Always Love You, Lucy Bell. And like the last few songs I've shared at the end, It's a little project that I've done based on The Bell Witch. I hope you enjoy it. And please join us next time for Stovepipes Caravan. Dress is white and her stockings are ripped Drinking songs come out her lips Wolves and birds appear at her command She knows the heart of man's a sin Call out her name and she'll enter in Spells and Jesus in her hands The town it trades tobacco Rumors gossip and don't you know There's always someone else between the sheets That ghosts do wear around their heads The wives of preachers put on beds The one which is pulled off when we're asleep And oh it's 3am And I'm alone again The room is darker than it's ever been And the fog upon this town 
hide skeletons and spirits that do dwell. But praise your name, I'll always love you, Lucy Bell. The South is clear and the South is dead. Christ is risen and Christ is dead. He haunts these grounds like our family. And John Bell, he's the holy kind. Cheats and steals and leaves you blind. Sugar mouth, yeah, you're sour, yeah, you're sweet. Sugar mouth, yeah, you're sour, yeah, you're sweet. And oh, it's three a.m. And I'm alone again. The room is darker than it's ever been, and the fog upon this town hides skeletons and spirits that do dwell. But praise your name, I'll always love you, Lucy Bell. Steal away the light Curse your days till they're dark as night Pitch them black like hell Without a flame Cause the dead bury the living ones Family portraits and loaded guns From dirt we come till we turn into graves And oh, it's 3 a.m. I'm alone again The room is darker Than it's ever been And the fog Upon this town Hides skeletons and spirits That do dwell But praise your name I'll always love you Lucy Bell